Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Bill Domnarski, and I'm doing a podcast today with Kermit Roosevelt about his new book called The Nation That Never Was. Today is uh, September 20th, 2022, and I hope in the podcast to talk about two basic things. One is about the book itself, and the second is how Kermit decided to write this book and how he actually wrote it. So with that in mind, let's turn first to Kermit and ask him... um, where he teaches, how long he's been teaching at that particular place, and what he teaches. So tell us, Kermit, where do you teach? Um, I teach at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. So first, also, let me just thank you for having me on. I'm really happy to be here and have the opportunity to talk to you and to have your listeners listen. Um, so I teach at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. I teach constitutional law. That's probably my primary focus. I also teach conflict of laws, which is a little bit more esoteric. It's about cases that have connections with more than one state. And I teach a creative writing seminar. I've, I've been at Penn for 20 years now. Now, this creative writing seminar, is that somehow related to the wonderful novel that you wrote? Yeah, so I'm, I'm also a novelist. Um, you know, I, I think that fiction, and this has something to do with the book, actually, fiction narrative is a very powerful way of reaching people so that academic argument is sometimes effective, but narrative is also very effective if you want to change people's minds, if you want to affect the way they think about issues related to their identity. Stories are often the best way to do that. Um, And I I think it's useful for lawyers, also primarily litigators, because I tell my students, if you're in litigation, you've got a judge or a jury, and basically you want them to believe that the story you're telling is the true one and that your client is the hero and not the villain and the other side has their story. And the techniques that you use to make your story compelling are really the techniques of fiction writing. Well, unfortunately, in our podcast, only the audio is... uh posted on the website as opposed to the uh, visual as well, because I'm holding up now a copy of your book. This is your, I think, first novel because you had a second, which I'll ask you about in a second. And this novel, I want to plug it. It's called In the Shadow of the Law, and it's a wonderful novel about big law. Um, Tell us a little bit about why you wrote that. Well, so I wrote that because I had been writing novels for a while. I, I wrote my first novel, I guess, probably in college, and then I wrote another one in law school. Um, And I wrote, I guess, a third one while I was clerking. And the problem that I had was I was writing about my life. I was writing sort of about my romantic misadventures, which was very interesting to me, but not that interesting to other people. And, you know, not something where I had an interesting perspective to share because my experiences were pretty common, I guess. And so I started asking myself, as I was starting to work at a big firm, uh, which I did after my clerkships, what do I know that people are interested in? What can I write that would 
give people something that they don't necessarily get from their own lives. And what I realized was at this point, I have a bunch of different perspectives on the legal system. So I know what it's like not to be a lawyer and I know what it's like to be a judicial clerk. And from my experience clerking, I can maybe imagine what it's like to be a judge. And now I know what it's like to be a young associate in a big firm. And I can maybe imagine what it's like to be an older partner and so on. So I can give a lot of different perspectives on the legal system. And that's what I was trying to do in that book. I was trying to show how the legal system affects people's lives, you know, whether you're a participant in it as a lawyer or whether you're caught up in it as a defendant. Um, and I was trying to show how different people understand their roles and sort of how all of this comes together. Well, I've written this someplace in one of the reviews I've uh, written about similar kinds of novels. This is the best novel yet about big law. It really is, and it's a tremendous book. People should read it. But there was a, another novel that you wrote, one about uh, World War II. Yes, and if, if people could see the video, they'd see I have that on my bookshelf in the background. So it's it's called Allegiance, and that's about the Supreme Court during World War II, and particularly the cases about the detention of Japanese Americans. What brought you to that subject? Well, what brought me to that subject was really my experience working on Guantanamo cases because I, I got involved in Guantanamo litigation and I was hired as a constitutional expert by defense counsel. And I, you know, I sort of went into it assuming that my government was doing the right thing and my government was competent and they were protecting me from bad people and maybe doing tough but necessary stuff. Um, and then I found out as I learned more and more that actually they were kind of incompetent and not necessarily that good. Like they were doing, they were making mistakes and they were also doing bad things. And it really complicated the way I felt about America and my government. I sort of struggled with that. You know, what, what do you do when it seems like your government is doing bad things and they say they're doing it for you and maybe they're actually motivated by a real desire to protect you. But you're like, this is not how I want to be protected because I have values that are more important to me than maybe just my safety. And also, you know, what you're doing is counterproductive. But even if it wasn't, this is not the America that I want to be a citizen of. So I wanted to try to tell that story um, because I thought, you know, there's the story of the people who are being tortured and subjected to terrible treatment. But, you know, I don't have a particularly great perspective on that and they're telling their stories. But I want to tell the story of someone who's working for the government, someone who's an insider and then starts to have these questions about what the government is doing and where your loyalty really lies in a situation like that. So I thought an interesting way to explore that would be to look at a historical episode that we can look back on now and say, yeah, that was a mistake because I think we've got a pretty strong consensus that the detention of the Japanese Americans was unjustified and show how someone who goes into the process really believing in the government and trusting it starts having these questions and starts wondering where his real allegiance lies. And that's what the title is about. Well, you used an important word in your description. You talked about your own personal struggle with the uh, with your perception of, the, of what the government was up to. This book, the one you have out now, called The Nation That Never Was, represents uh, another struggle of yours. You're struggling now with the state of the nation, what's been going on, uh, obviously, for the last 200 years, but more than that, what's going on right now. So why don't you, in a, uh, in a thumbnail, if you would, sketch your argument about 
the nation that never was. Because I then have about 45 questions that I've written out for you. Okay, great. Yeah, so, you know, I hadn't really thought about the connection to allegiance, but like, as you pointed out, it's sort of the same thing. Because I think that Americans generally are facing a kind of similar struggle in that we've been told the story about how the great founders wrote down these wonderful principles and then American history is a progressive realization of maybe most centrally the ideal of equality in the Declaration of Independence. And then over the past, you know, maybe 40 years or so, that story has been challenged by people who are trying to make it more accurate and to show us some of the flaws of founding America. And then the question is, well, if you accept the flaws of founding America and you realize Thomas Jefferson enslaved his own children, for instance, um, is that still a story that shows you an America you can be proud of? And we're having a lot of trouble with that. I think the younger generations don't find that as compelling a story as people used to. And what I'm trying to do is offer an alternative story, which I think is actually more true, but also is supposed to be more useful so that this is something that people can, can gather around where the story says our ideals weren't there in 1776. They're not the heart of founding America. They're actually articulated really more by dissenters from founding America, people who saw the injustice in founding America. And this idea that the Declaration has an, a central concern with equality doesn't actually come from Thomas Jefferson. It comes from abolitionists later. And the values that we associate with modern America that we think of as central to our identity, equality and universal liberty, those are really a product of the abolitionist movement not the movement for independence from Great Britain, but the abolitionist movement and the pre-Civil War Republican Party and Abraham Lincoln, and they prevail in the Civil War and they enter our constitution in the Reconstruction Amendments, not the 1787 Constitution. And our sense of America as a nation and our sense of American identity really should be centered on the Civil War and Reconstruction. And I think that's more accurate, but it's also a better story um, in a number of ways, but maybe the most obvious of which is we don't have to say our ideals were stated by slaveholders. We don't have to say the people who won our independence were a bunch of slave owning states, right? Because in 1776, every one of the 13 colonies recognizes slavery. We can actually say our nation was born in a war for liberty and the war that ended slavery. And it's, it just doesn't have as much baggage. Well, you go even further and you actually give a term to it called the Reconstruction Constitution. Yes. So the how, does that Constitution differ, how does that Reconstruction Constitution differ from the original Constitution? So the Reconstruction Constitution differs enormously from the original Constitution um, in a bunch of ways. One is it's much more concerned with individual rights. It's protecting the rights of individuals against their own states. And the original Constitution basically leaves the relationship between states and their citizens up to the states. So it's a more individual rights focused document. And then more generally, it trusts the federal government. So the lesson of the Civil War basically is the federal government is the good guys. The states are the bad guys or the people, the entities that we need to be suspicious of because the states are the ones who are oppressing people. They're oppressing basically the formerly enslaved. And the 1787 Constitution is much more skeptical 
of the federal government and it trusts the states because the model of the 1787 constitution is the revolution where the national government king george is oppressive and the states and the state militias are the ones who are standing up for liberty and defending individual rights so it's almost an inversion of the founding understanding well i don't want to go too far astray here but in the 40s and 50s there was a fight on the supreme court about the incorporation doctrine, which seems to get at what you're talking about. But the ones who did not want to incorporate the various provisions of the Bill of Rights seem to believe in the idea that the states were the good guys and the federal government was not the good guy. Um, why did that persist? Why wasn't it the case that by the 40s and 50s, with this hideous history from the South, that the Supreme Court would recognize that indeed the South couldn't be trusted and that incorporation was one way to help provide protections for those living in those states against their own states. Well, I'm not sure, you know, my, my guess would be it has something to do with the dominance in American consciousness and history of this idea that we're the same nation we always were. Um, because that's what makes you look back to the founding and focus on the founding understanding rather than the reconstruction understanding. And so this is what I call the standard story of America, which is like our ideals are there at the beginning, they're progressively realized over time, and we are the descendants and the intellectual heirs, basically, of the people who signed the Declaration of Independence and the 1787 Constitution. Well, my question in a way was whether the... Um folks on the Supreme Court at that time, Frankfurt or others, were looking at it through the prism of a version of originalism and wanted to know only what the founders thought about the relationship between the states and the federal government. Um, now, you were talking about this, this uh, idea about the Constitution being so deeply flawed. Is it, is it true that a lot of historians or politicians or judges view history as a kind of a severable thing? like a statue that can cut out parts of it and not really deal with it and let the rest go on. Because what you're saying, suggesting, if I understand this right, is that the full history of what was going on at the time in the 18th century isn't really considered today. And because it's not considered the, the, the grievous wrongs of what these folks were up to, um, the effect of that isn't really felt. I'm not articulating yeah, very well, but do you see what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think that's true. You know, and I guess I would say two things about it. One, history is always incomplete. History is always interpretation. Um, no one is presenting a global, entirely complete, just factually accurate, this is the way things are perspective, because everything has to be a perspective. You know, we're, we're humans, we have perspectives, we're limited. There is no, you know, godlike omniscient account of history um, and you know not just a perspective but also sort of an ideology because as i was saying before about narrative narrative is important narrative is the way we understand the world it's the selection of historical facts and their arrangement and their interpretation that gives them meaning and people aren't interested in a simple recitation of facts really they're interested in a story that has meaning that they can relate to that tells them something about who they are and what they should do so history is inevitably incomplete i think 
politicians tend to leave out particular parts because they have particular goals. And I'm afraid that judges and originalist judges do that too. They're probably even worse because litigation and legal opinion writing is not a place where you can engage the complexities of history very well. Well, another thing, uh, Charles Fried makes a big point of this, is that um, he's the very distinguished law professor at Harvard, um, former Solicitor General in the Reagan administration, who's uh, changed his views about conservative um, judici judicial ideas. Uh, one thing he makes a point of saying is that judges should not try to be historians. What do you think about that? I think judges should not try to be historians, probably because they don't have the training and they don't have the environment for it. And what judges are asked to do is not necessarily compatible with the perspective or methodology of a true historian. So, in, you know, in the adversary system, judges get presented certain materials by the parties and they're supposed to rule based on those materials, which, you know, a real historian would never do. So judges are engaged in a different kind of enterprise. I do think history is important for understanding, and I'm not exactly sure what the best method of presenting history to judges or getting judges to take history into account in a good way is. So, you know, on the one hand, I think history is crucially important for understanding America. History is important for understanding the Constitution. On the other hand, I don't think that litigation using the adversary system is a good way to get a sophisticated historical understanding. All right, let me take you back to this idea of the Reconstruction Constitution. So clearly you're talking in, in, in part at least about the 14th Amendment, but tell me about the Gettysburg Address and why that was so important. I think the Gettysburg Address is important, well, for a lot of reasons. One is it sort of represents the victory of this idea that our fundamental ideals are there in the Declaration of Independence. And this conception of equality that's central to America now is there in the Declaration of Independence. Because Lincoln says, I'm fighting for the Declaration, right? America is a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And that's what I'm fighting for. And that's the Declaration. So the mantle of founding America rests on my shoulders and I'm fighting for the founder's vision, which is a crazy thing to say if you think about it, because what is Lincoln doing? Lincoln is engaged in a war against people who have declared their independence, who have said exactly what the revolutionary patriots said, right? We consented to this government and we thought we were getting certain rights and now we're not getting the rights that we bargained for. And so we withdraw our consent and we're gonna change our form of government. The Confederates are doing exactly what the American patriots did. And Lincoln is suppressing and denying their independence. Um, and yet, he says he's fighting in the name of the Declaration of Independence, and now we believe this. Now everyone accepts that. So it's a really important transformative moment there. But in addition to taking this connection to the past and asserting that connection, Lincoln is also transforming the meaning of the past, which is maybe more important. So in 1776, the Declaration is about independence. And it has a certain understanding of the nature and purpose of government, which is to be legitimate, a government must be based on consent and it must protect the natural rights of the people who form it. And Lincoln totally changes that. So now he's saying the Declaration is about equality. And what makes a government legitimate is one sort of whether it's just. So he's talking about a new birth of freedom, 
Um, we're going to have a new legal order, a new political regime, and it's going to be based on freedom and equality, which are good things. And then also, I think really crucially, going forward, the question of legitimacy is going to be tied to democracy, not protection of the natural rights of insiders, because the Gettysburg Address is where you get this expression of government by the people, of the people, for the people, which is democracy. And democracy is not present as a value in the Declaration of Independence. Declaration of Independence doesn't say anything about how a government needs to be democratic. Well, maybe we should flesh this idea out a little more. Your opening chapter, which uh, is a tour de force deconstruction of the Declaration, your, your argument there is that we've misunderstood, in a way, the Declaration of Independence pretty much from the time it was written. How did how have we misunderstood it? We've misunderstood it because we massively overread this phrase, all men are created equal. So what does it mean to say all men are created equal? We think nowadays it means something about how the government should treat people in society. So we have a government, how should it treat people? It should treat people in a way that is consistent with the idea that everyone is inherently of equal worth. So basically we should have equal rights. Um, you know, maybe some kinds of distinctions are permissible, but we should have a fundamental idea that everyone is at least entitled to equal concern and respect and the government should weigh everyone's interests equally. So it's about relationships between the individuals and the government. And if you look at the 1776 understanding of the declaration, it's pretty clearly not about that. So this understanding emerges it starts maybe in the 1790s. Pauline Mayer has a great article about where all this comes from um, called The Strange History of All Men Are Created Equal. It starts maybe in the 1790s. It gathers steam in the 1820s and 1830s as the abolitionist movement progresses. But if you go back to 1776, this is basically understood as Lockean social contract theory. And it's about the relationship between individuals in the state of nature, in a world without government or laws. It has nothing to do with government. And all it means really is in the state of nature, this hypothetical world without government and without law, no one has an obligation to obey anyone else. Right? All men are created equal in that no one can demand obedience from anyone else legitimately. And then the declaration goes on to give you a theory about where legitimate political authority comes from and when it can be rejected, because that's what the declaration is concerned with. Not, you know, whether the government has a duty to treat people equally, but where does legitimate political authority come from? When can it be rejected? Right? When can a people declare their independence from the government that used to have a legitimate claim on their obedience? Now, I really like what you said about Lincoln and this emphasis on equality as the the next, uh, as his reconsideration of the uh, declaration. And it reminded me of, <clears throat> I guess I'm plugging another book now, the wonderful chapter that Lucas Powell has in his book called The War in Court in American Politics, in which he talks about Ro uh, Brown versus Board of Education. And <clears throat> he says that at the highest level here, that is to say, Chief Justice Warren, uh, in his consideration of the case, was animated by one idea and one idea only, and all the the the, the apparatus of, of legal reasoning just fell away, and uh, that this idea of equality uh, uh, triumphed. That is, uh, I'm bearing the lead here. The idea is equality. That's all that he cared about was equality, and that if you read the opinion, it's really a, 
something of a disaster for those who care about legal reasoning, but what shines through is this belief in equality. So it's a wonderful connection between Lincoln and what they did in Brown versus Board of Education. How do you see the significance of that case, Brown versus Board of Education? And what you're writing about here? So Brown v. Board of Education, I think, shows us the extent to which we are Reconstruction America. That's what I would say, because if you decide Brown under the 1787 Constitution, of course, it comes out the other way because the 1787 Constitution says nothing about how states should set up their public school systems um, because it doesn't have the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. It doesn't have a requirement that states treat people equally in any way. So Brown is part of the Reconstruction Constitution, and Brown is the heart of our constitutional self-understanding. So if you ask sort of lay people, if you ask non-lawyers, what's the greatest Supreme Court decision? Most of them will probably say Brown. And if you know, if you ask law students or lawyers, what's the best Supreme Court decision that shows us the way the Constitution should work, where we really feel good about the system as it's operating? Mostly they will also probably say Brown. And if you ask law professors, what's like the case that you will never see overturned? Or what is the case that you most want to have on your side, the best authority? You know, if you're litigating and you're like, this case is just like my case is just like X. What do you want people to appeal to? The answer is Brown. So Brown is really very, very central to our constitutional understanding. Some people say, you know, if you have a constitutional theory and it says that Brown is wrong, what that means is your constitutional theory is wrong because it's the fixed point of our constitutional jurisprudence. So put those things together, right? Brown is reconstruction. Brown is the center of our constitutional jurisprudence. It tells you the constitution that we live under, the constitution we experience is really the reconstruction constitution and not the 1787 Constitution, which has very different views about the extent to which there's federal supervision of the relationship between states and their citizens. So Brown is now beyond the reach of the originalists. Is that true? Well, you never know what the originalists are going to do. Um, I think Brown is actually pretty easy as a matter of originalism, but it, it sort of depends on what version of originalism you're following. So one version says, decide this case the way it would have been decided if it had been brought in 1868. So we get applications that are the same as the original expected applications, basically. And if that's, the, if that's what you're doing, then Brown probably is wrong. Because if you had asked in 1868, is it permissible for states to segregate their public schools? The answer probably would have been yes. That's what the people who drafted and ratified the 14th Amendment probably would have said, at least plenty of them. Um, you know, maybe not the integrated reconstruction governments because they'd reintegrated schools, but the Congress maybe that was running a segregated school system in DC. But the other way of understanding the 14th Amendment is as an original matter, people said, we are enacting a ban on arbitrary or oppressive or unjustified discrimination. And of course, as times and circumstances change, people may reach different conclusions about what is arbitrary or oppressive or unjustified or stigmatizing, right? Stigma is something they're very concerned about. And if future generations think that a particular practice is arbitrary or unjustified or stigmatizing or oppressive, then judges should strike it down 
And it doesn't matter what we would have said about it because we want the future. We want the views of the future to control that question. And if you think that's what the 14th Amendment is doing, then Brown is perfectly consistent with originalism because facts and circumstances and social understandings had changed between 1868 and 1953. Well, I want to come back to this originalism, especially in the context of uh, Reagan and what you call uh, um, the redemption movement. But it's not just Brown that uh, the Warren Court presides over. It's a whole number of cases, so many cases that you actually use the term that the Warren Court represents the second reconstruction. Wonderful idea. Tell us about that. Well, I don't think that that's particularly original to me, I should say. Um, fewer people, although there are also some people who do this, fewer people describe the Reagan revolution as the second redemption, which I do think is how it should be understood. Um, but C. Dan Woodward, I think, describes the Warren Court in the Civil Rights era as second reconstruction. And it, it makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, if you look at the first reconstruction, what's happening, there's this guarantee of equality put in the Constitution with the 14th Amendment, and there's voting rights. So the 15th Amendment says no racial discrimination with respect to the right to vote. And of course, those get submerged or rolled back during redemption when the white Democrats take over the South again, and you get segregation and Jim Crow, and you get massive suppression of black voting. Um, but then in this second reconstruction civil rights period, those are the values that come back. So the 14th Amendment anti-discrimination principle comes back in cases like Brown and Loving. And then sort of crucially, it's not just the courts, you get meaningful protection of black voting rights with the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And this would be the same Voting Rights Act that was cut back a few years ago by the Supreme Court? Yes, well, so exactly, right? That's why this is the second redemption, because what we're seeing is a pretty concerted attempt to undo the gains of the second reconstruction. So the Equal Protection Clause, which was a shield against oppressive racial discrimination, now is being turned into a sword to cut down government attempts to promote equality, like affirmative action. And the Supreme Court is pulling back the Voting Rights Act. Um, I mean, it's pretty much undone the Voting Rights Act at this point. So if you look at what redemption took away from America um, and the gains of reconstruction that were undone, you're seeing a parallel now, and it's not quite as extreme because I guess, you know, it, it sort of echoes more quietly as the years go by, but it's exactly the same process. An equality movement makes gains. It makes gains in terms of sort of social meaning and social arrangements like schools. And it makes gains very important politically because you get black voting rights and then the anti-equality movement comes along and attacks exactly those gains. And that's exactly what we're seeing, right? Resegregation effectively of schools and um, undermining black voting rights. All right, one of the things I wanna make sure the audience uh appreciates is that your book is not just a exercise in legal history or constitutional history. It's a very shrewd, very smart, very informed assessment of politics today, what's going on in American politics. So what I want to ask you is what is the counter argument? What would the reactionaries say 
to your book, the ones who like the status quo, they like the idea that originalism is now uh, dominating legal uh, analysis. What would they say about your attempt to, in a way, tell this different, better story and ask for a reorientation of the way we look at our legal history? Well, I think they would probably say that I'm not being fair to the founders, um, that I'm not giving them enough credit, maybe, that you know they were prisoners of their time and had anti-slavery ideals that they couldn't make into law. Um, and they did hope that future generations would do things differently. Um, but I think, I think so that's, that's a version of the uh, of the severable argument that I was talking about. The idea that you can look at three fourths of what a person does, not the ugly fourth, but the good three fourths. Um, but that doesn't really hold up very well because we're left with a document, and it's the document that endures over generations. You you find fault with the document in a fundamental way. You find fault with the Constitution. I think rightly so. So what would they say to that? Are, are they going to say that you're just an anarchist? What are they going to say? Um, no, I was well, so on the Constitution, on the Declaration of Independence, I find fault with that. I say it doesn't contain the values we ascribe to it. I think they would say, yes, but it's been an inspirational force for good, right? And then there's a very different question about what has the effect of the Declaration been in constitutional interpretation in American history, which is worth exploring. Um, but then on the Constitution, uh, some people say, look, the 1787 Constitution is not pro-slavery. It's anti-slavery. Sean Willentz, right, writes a whole book called No Property in Man, where he tries to argue that the 1787 Constitution is fundamentally anti-slavery, I guess, because it doesn't use the word slavery. Yes, you, in about five pages, utterly demolish his argument. <laughs> so what would, he, what would Sean say in reaction to what you uh, wrote? Uh, well, I don't know. I'd love to hear it. Um, you know, and I'd be happy to have him review the book. Because you, you or, set out three or four reasons. It. Let me, uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. But you set out three or four reasons why it's a pro-slavery document. What are the other reasons? Well, the thing to understand about the Constitution, I think, is like I said, it's not really about individual rights. The point of the Constitution is to deal with issues that you can't leave to the states. Um, and those are like interstate cooperation and foreign affairs. So they're what Akhil Amar calls geostrategic considerations. And what's striking about the issue of slavery is that the Constitution does address it, and that's an issue of individual rights. It's an issue of some individuals violating the natural rights of other individuals. But the Constitution addresses it from a geostrategic perspective. Basically, states disagree about this, and how do we manage that disagreement? And the way it manages it is compromise. But because at the drafting of the Constitution, the pro-slavery people care about the issue a lot more, than the anti-slavery people, you get compromise with a pro-slavery tilt to it. So the international slave trade is protected until 1808, which is as long as it needs to be protected, because at that point you've got a sufficient enslaved population that it's self-perpetuating. Um, the fugitive slave clause gives the slave states the right to reclaim enslaved people. Um, who have fled to other states, which they didn't have before. And it very strikingly abridges state sovereignty. So, you know, for the people who say states' rights 
is what the Confederates are concerned about. The Fugitive Slave Clause is an anti-states rights provision. It takes away from sovereign states the ability to determine the status of people who come within their borders, which is a pretty fundamental as aspect of sovereignty. And then the Three-Fifths Compromise tilts the whole national government in favor of slave states. It does this sort of most directly by determining the number of representatives that a state gets, because that's where it works directly. But then that goes into the Electoral College and the selection of the president, because the number of electors that a state gets is in part calculated by its number of representatives. And then because the president appoints judges and justices of the Supreme Court, the three-fifths compromise affects the tilt of the federal judiciary. And the, the point that I always try to emphasize here is look at the Dred Scott decision. The Dred Scott decision says, as a matter of the 1787 Constitution, Congress can't ban slavery in the territories, and black people can never become United States citizens. Right? That's incredibly pro-slavery. Now, the reaction to that that people have is, oh, that's not from the 1787 Constitution. That's the product of a biased pro-slavery Supreme Court. And maybe that's right. You know, I'm not sure that Dred Scott is an accurate interpretation of the 1787 Constitution, although maybe it is, right? We should be open to the possibility that it's just a pro-slavery constitution. But even if Dred Scott is wrong, there are seven justices who vote for it. There are seven justices who vote for that terrible pro-slavery outcome. Why are there seven justices on the Supreme Court who are going to do that? Because they were appointed by pro-slavery presidents. Why do we have pro-slavery presidents? In large part because of the Three-Fifths Compromise. So Dred Scott is the product of the 1787 Constitution, even if it's wrong, because it's the 1787 Constitution that gives us that national government that is so pro-slavery. All right. I'm not too much trying to play devil's advocate here, advocate here, but a little bit. Um, so one way to look at your book is that it's a kind of roadmap. It's a historical roadmap, but also has suggestions about the future. What do you think we should do now with, with uh, your understanding of, of what's happened and why the Reconstruction Constitution is the better one? It's a better story. And what should happen next? You've, you've exposed this thing uh, that demands attention. What should happen next, do you think? Well, what should happen next, I think, is that we should try to shift our focus to the Civil War and Reconstruction. And I think we should do that gradually. I mean, I don't think it's going to work if you try to do it now and if you try to do it with um, adults, really, like people whose understandings of America are already fixed. So the terribly divisive and ineffective thing would be to say, now we must tear down all the statues of Jefferson and Washington, right? That's a bad idea. I don't think we should do that. What I do think we should do is at like the elementary school level, we should talk about reconstruction more and we should talk about the founding less. And in AP US history, maybe we can introduce some of these ideas in a more sophisticated way and talk about what really is the connection between founding America and reconstruction America and how do the ideals change. And generational replacement is my idea as to how to get the better story into America, because I'm, I'm not sure really. I used to think you could tell people this and they'd be like, yes, you know, you love America. I love America. I guess it's just a slightly different America, but I'm on board with that. Like I love Abraham Lincoln. I think it's going to be harder to get people to let go than I initially believed. 
So my strategy is like try to affect the way this is taught in schools and over time sort of bring up the next generation to think more about reconstruction and then just sort of continue that process. Well, this idea of, of doing it in the schools first, you know, that's a, it's a great idea, but what do we make of the fact that in the South, you, you, you hear reports of how they're actually trying to, uh, to uh, rewrite the history books uh, more and more so that the, uh, there was no real loser in the Civil War and it was all fought on this premise of honor and all that nonsense. Um, is the South capable of ever accepting what it actually did? Now, that's perhaps too much of a question to ask you, but that seems to me to be the big stumbling block obstacle to what you're talking about, the South. Yeah, well, I think they, they are. So, I mean, you, you can look at these bills around the country now that are restricting what public school teachers can say or requiring them to say particular things. And I always like to mention the Florida law that says American history shall be presented as the development of a nation based on the universal principles of the Declaration of Independence, because that's the bill that bans my book. So I'm banned in Florida. I had not but, heard this. You're banned in Florida? Well, not not specifically. They didn't name me, but okay. <laughs> they require that American history, they require a version of American history that I say is wrong. So I do believe my book is banned. Um, I think it, it meets the criteria of the ban. Mm-hmm. So you could look at those bills and say, oh, clearly this will never work. Or you could look at those bills and say they used to be able to do this just sort of because they were culturally and politically dominant and they didn't need a law. And if you look at the history of American education on race and history, um, you'll see that, right? They used to teach a much, much worse version of what they're trying to do now. American historical education has gotten much better from where it was in the 50s or 60s or even the 80s when I was in school. So I look at these laws as a sign that the standard story and this whitewashed version of American history is losing. And they realize that they're losing and they're trying to lock their version in through law because they can't do it anymore through school boards and culture. And I think that the cultural progression is going to continue. I think they're going to keep losing and trying to mandate a particular state approved version of history is not going to be effective. So I, I actually take those bills as sort of a promising sign. It's like the last gasp. It's like the proposals to amend the US Constitution to ban same sex marriage. You didn't need to do that in the 50s because mm -hmm. no one argued that the Constitution guaranteed a right to same-sex marriage. And this idea we're going to ban it only came when it was seen as a real possibility. And then it was too late, right? Then it was actually too late to stop the progress towards marriage equality. All right. I, I, I don't think this goes beyond the confines of your book. And I'll ask what I think is the really important question, which is, is there a connection? And if there is, what is it between what's going on in Supreme Court today um, these days, I should say, and what you describe in your book. Well, yeah, I think absolutely. Um, I think that originalism as a method of constitutional interpretation, one, I think it's sort of methodologically bankrupt. It doesn't constrain. It's very often just a mask for conservative policy preferences. But if you take originalism seriously 
and think about it, it does tend to oppose equality movements. It tends to oppose emerging equality movements. So if you're trying to advance a neo-Confederate ideology, basically, and you're, you're trying to undo the gains of equality movements, originalism is very useful for you. And I think that's basically the explanation for the first big surge of interest in originalism, which is Reagan's Justice Department. And I think that's an explanation for what we're seeing now. Um, Make America great again is actually a Reagan campaign slogan. I didn't know that until relatively recently, but that's what Reagan campaigned on. And this idea that we can look back to a past where things were better basically tells us, I think, you know, look back to a past where dissent was suppressed and things weren't better for a lot of people. Things were probably a lot worse, but we didn't hear about it as much. And fundamentally, I think that's what they're trying to do. Is there any hope for change? Yes, I think there's always hope. You know, my students give me hope. And I think that future generations are gonna be better. And I, you know, I do think that American history shows us some kind of progress there. I think it's a terrible mistake to think that that progress is inevitable so that all we have to do is wait and America will work itself pure. I think that's a counterproductive attitude. But I think that if you look at what's happened in the past, there are new generations that come along and struggle for justice and they advance the ball. And I do think that will keep happening. Well, there's also the idea that we just have to have different justices. <laughs> yeah, right. So on the Supreme Court, I think we need different justices. I think we actually need more justices. I would support that. And I think we need term limits. Well, with the age that you choose. Well, not age limits, but term limits. So the 18 year fixed term um, during which okay, a mean. justice okay. is, is in active service, and then they have something sort of like senior status, which I think can be done by statute. The point there is you make sure that each president gets two Supreme Court appointments per four year term, and then you regularize the impact that presidents have on the Supreme Court, because right now it's totally out of whack and it's based on random chance and like when justices die and it's based on strategic retirement. When do they decide to retire? And it's based on partisan hardball. When can you stop the other party from appointing a president? And so you get things like Carter gets zero and Trump gets three, which really doesn't make sense. That's not the way control of the Supreme Court should be determined. And we have the system we do because the framers did not expect the Supreme Court to be a power center fought over by two deeply polarized political parties, which is what's happening now. All right, let me ask you a different question because you've been a law clerk. Um, who did you clerk for? I clerked for Justice Souter. Terrific justice, just a terrific justice. Um, how old was he when he walked away? Was he 65? Yeah, I think that's about right. He was he was young. So Justice Souter is clearly someone who was not hanging out of the position because it defined his identity and he enjoyed the power and the prestige. He's really the counterexample to that. I, I think of him as like Cincinnatus. So he was called up, you know, he did his duty. He didn't particularly enjoy it. And when it was an appropriate time for him to step down, he did. Although, like, I got to say, that was a strategic retirement. You know, he wanted his successor I, to be appointed court, by a Democratic president. I'm not a court insider, uh, and I don't know for sure what the truth is. But the impression I have had is that Souter uh, did his own work, that he was a very engaged justice. 
in contrast, and this is what my question is going to be, in contrast to those who, who let their law clerks do everything aside from vote. And even then, they might even vote for them. I don't know. Um, is it true about Souter that he did his own work? Um, yes, I would say Souter did his own work. I can't really compare him to other justices. I mean, I, I know stories from like the 70s and 80s about justices who were incapacitated and the clerks were doing the work. Um, certainly, it would not be easy to tell as a clerk if the clerks in a different chambers were doing most of the work, because I think they wouldn't let you know. Um, for Justice Souter, I, I'll tell you, like, consistently, my experience was he would give the clerks things to do. And we would think, wow, here's a big, important thing I'm doing. And then it turned out, you know, he was doing that more for our benefit than for his, and he didn't need it. And he was really <laughs> doing the work independently, but he wanted us to have that experience. So I, I really appreciated that. Um, you know, it was one of the many wonderful things about Justice Souter. But yes, I, I think he certainly did his own work. I, I don't, I can't really with confidence speak about the other justices. All right, and since you've been there, uh, tell us about what you think about this uh, problem that we had, was it in May with the leaked uh, abortion decision? What do you make of that? Well, I know I this is the, far afield from your book, but I'm just, since I have you here, I need to ask. What do you yeah, think? I mean, I, I can say, I think the leak is a sign that something was deeply wrong at the court because the duty of loyalty and confidentiality is one of the things that certainly they impress on the clerks. Um, the justices, I think justices probably leak more than clerks historically, probably because the justices have more confidence in their ability to do it and survive any repercussions. So, you know, if you go back to the 1940s, and you know a lot about this, I guess, um, I, I think the justices are leaking more than the clerks. And in this case, trying to figure out who would have benefited from the leak. The outraged liberal clerk story does not make a lot of sense to me because I don't think it helped the liberals because it sort of prepared the nation for what was coming and it changed the focus a bit from the outcome to the leak. So it's like more of a process story than a substance story suddenly. So I think it, it helped the majority. And if I had to guess, I would say it's a leak from the majority side, maybe most likely from the Alito chambers, you know, maybe with Alito's knowledge. Um, and it's an attempt to lock in votes because the weird thing is there was something kind of similar in the Wall Street Journal a little before there was a story saying, we guess that Alito is writing this opinion and we guess it's going to overturn Roe, and it sure would be terrible if something like the Affordable Care Act happened and some justice defected. Um, mm -hmm. So that's like the sort of moderate leak trying to lock in votes version. Someone talked to the Wall Street Journal. Um, and then you get this more extreme leak the opinion, which kind of has the same effect, I think. So like, we'll see if the investigation ever tells us anything. But in terms of who benefits, I think it's the majority. That's what that's what I would guess. All right, I'm going to shift gears again. Um, I, I think of myself, perhaps wrongly, but I think of myself as a pretty sophisticated reader. And I read your novel about the big law firms, uh, I think either twice or three times. I think it's a terrific novel. It's a very, very smart novel. That's what I like about it in particular. But you're also actually, by the way, a very fine writer. Um, so there's a voice in my head that I've had about you coming from that novel. And then I read this book in the last week or so. 
And there was a very different voice that came through. I mean, a very pleasant voice. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you're a harsh critic or anything, but it's a very different voice. There was a level of insistence, a relentless insistence on your idea. Have you changed? Is it just the nature of the, of the subject matter you're writing about? Tell us how this book came to you and why you decided to write it the way you did. Because you also have a conversational tone in the book, which I don't think is just, it's, it, there's a reason for it. And I want you to talk about, if you can, why you wrote this book and why you wrote it the way you did. Well, so in terms of the contrast to the first book, I wrote In the Shadow of the Law starting in 2002, and it was published in 2005, and I was a very different person then. You know, it was before Guantanamo. It was before, well, I mean, it was before my, my involvement in Guantanamo litigation. Um, it was before Black Lives Matter, and it was before I had spent a lot of time teaching constitutional law and thinking about American history and American values. And I was probably more complacent, I guess I would say, in 2002, because as the years went by, I learned lots of disturbing things. And so the more insistent tone is probably a product of, you know, me thinking maybe of my earlier self and saying, look at this, look at what's happening, understand the nature of the world that you're living in, because it's not as nice and fair as you think it is. Um, and the conversational tone, uh, what I'm trying to do with this book is not, you know, lecture people in an academic sense, but talk to them and try to change their minds and try to show them things that they might not have thought about. So it's like simultaneously, I guess, conversational and maybe hectoring, because <laughs> to me, to me, I'm looking back and I'm like, how could I not have known that? Right? How could I have grown up the way that I did? and not understood these fundamental truths about America. Um, so I guess, you know, some of that is coming through, but to the extent that it comes across as this insistent lecturing, I think it really is directed at, at my earlier self. Oh, I didn't read it as lecturing. Uh, that, that, that's uh, not uh, correct, because uh, that's unpleasant. No one wants to be lectured. Oh no, you, were, you completely engaged me. And part of it is the, uh, the conversational, um, asking questions all the time and then answering your questions. But what it also, uh, what also struck me about that approach is that you clearly have an audience in mind. And my guess, deep down, maybe you're not gonna be willing to admit this, deep down, you want particular people to read this book. All right, who did you want to read this book, really? You want the people, the nine on the Supreme Court to read this book? Who did you have in mind, politicians? But you want to change things. And that's a wonderful thing, by the way. I'm not in any way criticizing. I'm just saying it's a terrific book trying to engage people in the most important issue of our time. Who did you want to read the book? Well, the short answer is everyone. Um, <laughs> politicians would be great. You know, I would love to see the political rhetoric around America change a little bit so that politicians talk more about the Civil War and Reconstruction and less about the founding. Because right now it's always, oh, 4th of July, Declaration of Independence, that's where America comes from. So I'd love to see that change. Um, also maybe judges, because this, this could affect the way that, that people think about the Constitution. And also teachers. I think maybe if I have a 
real core audience in mind, it would be teachers, because that's how I think you reach the next generation. That's how you have the greatest impact if you change the way educators think about American history. All right. If I haven't made it clear so far, this is just a terrific book. It really is. Is a, a, a book that people should read. Now, do you think this is going to be your career achievement, or do you have other things that are going to be even bigger than this? Well, you know, the next project I'll probably think is even bigger while I'm working on it. Right now, I think this is this is the most important thing I've ever done. And what is that next project? Have you figured it out yet? Uh, no, no. I mean, the immediate next project I don't think I will think is more important is like a vampire novel. I want to write a vampire <laughs> novel. Well, I look forward to that too. Uh, what was it like working with the University of Chicago Press? Um, it was a good experience. I had I had a good editor. Uh, you know, I, I had written with the University Press before, with Yale, and this time I tried to defer more to my editor, and mm -hmm. hope that he could make it more readable. Um, it was a good experience. I liked them. And how often do people ask you about your connection to the former president? Oh, all the time. They ask me that a lot. <laughs> I noticed in that opening paragraph or two of the Guardian article or review that appeared last week, there was a reference to that. Um, so where does your name come from? Kermit Roosevelt III. Well, it's a little bit complicated because I'm actually the fourth Kermit Roosevelt. And the reason, the reason I'm the third is they used to update the numbers. Um, and then I stopped doing that because I, I didn't want to change from the third to junior, which seems sort of crazy. Because uh, I've been trying to distinguish myself from my father by being the third instead of junior, and people still, every time I wrote an op-ed, would call him up. Uh, <laughs> but Kermit, the name Kermit, that's the name of Theodore's second son. And so there's a line of Kermit Roosevelt's going down from Theodore to the first Kermit, then my grandfather, my father, and me. All right. Now, there was a story, I think, about Robert uh, Mueller. He's uh, Robert Mueller III, and his nickname was Sticks to refer to the third. The, the Roman numerals. People ever call you sticks? No, no. Uh, there was a law student who called me Trey. Oh, that's <laughs> uh, interesting. Yeah, Trey or Trip. You know that you can call someone the third that way. Um, but no, I've never actually had a nickname like that. Okay. Well, again, uh, this is a terrific book. It's. Uh, I mean, we also read the subtitle. I didn't read that earlier. The nation that never was reconstructing America's story. Um, Kermit Roosevelt, the third University of Chicago Press, 2022, isn't it? Just published? Yep. Yep. 2022. Thank you very much for your time, Kermit. I really appreciate this. Uh, this has been a terrific podcast. People will learn quite a bit um, about American history and about how we should be thinking about ourselves, which I think is the point of your book.